Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast is a line attributed to Peter Drucker, the well-known management consultant. What you are is just as important as what you do. Lead teacher Jeff Norris begins the new series, Worship Together, with this sermon entitled, We Worship Together in Spirit and Truth, which covers John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to this series, Worship Together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the ways in which you have so, uh, so indeed been faithful and good and kind to advance your kingdom in and through this, uh, this little part of your kingdom called Perimeter Church. Lord, we're, just, we're grateful we get to be a part, partakers in your message of reconciliation, uh, those who have been rescued by you, Christ, uh, redeemed, made new, and sent out. Thanks for all the ways in which you're at work even in more ways than we can even see you're at work. So thank you, and you're doing it all for your glory. We praise you for that. We pray for this time together now as we open your word. We ask for your blessing over it. Would you press it deep into our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. So culture is a big thing in the world, has been for quite some time now, but if you talk, it's it's getting even more popular. If you talk to any organizational gurus or CEOs or various people who have succeeded, if you will, in organizational development and growth, they're going to tell you almost always that one of the very first things that you need to make sure is happening, if not the first thing that you need to make sure is happening, is that a culture is being established and clearly understood by everyone in the organization. That everyone understands this is what we do and this is why we do it. And that's what everyone begins to adopt as the culture. Now, what do we mean by culture? Culture uh, comes from the Latin cultus, which literally means value or care. So in other words, it is what we, if we say we have a culture of something, it means that this is what we care about most. This is what we value most. Now, what is it? So, So it begs the question when we think about culture, and we talk about this a lot as our staff, But what is it that we, as the church, not just Perimeter Church, but the church, globally, holistically, what is it that we are to value most? What is it that we are to care about most? And the answer to that question, according to scripture, is one word, and it's worship. More than anything else, more than missions, more than evangelism, more than our service out there, the way that we love and serve and implement the various ways in which the gospel leads us to love people and serve them, more than any of those things, worship is preeminent. Worship is what takes precedence over it all. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he said it this way. He said, worship uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. Okay, so what is it that we're chasing after? What is it that we're longing God to do? Is we're, we're longing for God to bring about more and more worshipers. This is, this is what God was getting at, at the very beginning. We talk about this all the time. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the, all, the, all the earth. Well, what does that mean? What is he ultimately getting at? He's saying, fill the earth with those who image God and worship him. Fill the earth with God worshipers. So what is the endeavor or the end, if you will, of our missions? It's that people may worship the one true God. So one day when he has returned and all things have been made new, 
There will be no need for missions. All in the new heavens and new earth will be God worshipers, and so we will worship for all of eternity, and missions will be no more. Evangelism will be no more. And so the culture of the church is worship. The Westminster Divines, when they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, and when that was consolidated and summarized in the Shorter Catechism, the very first question they ask, what is the chief end of man? And they answer it very simply, but profoundly, the chief end of man, of mankind, man and woman, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we can sum that up by saying to worship him. Because that's what worship is. To glorify God and to enjoy God as the one for whom we were made and to the one for whom all of our life is directed. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Worship. That's why you and I exist. Now here's the problem. The problem is, and this is gonna be obvious, you go, well, yeah, of course, and so I don't mean to be just stating the obvious or being too simplistic, but it's just the simple truth. We often, even those of us who've been in the church who have known God through Christ for quite some time, we lose sight of this simple truth, that the point of our existence is worship. Because we are, ever since Genesis 3, we are a people who just very innately, true to our nature, very quickly and instinctively place ourselves in the place of God. Is this not what the first commandment is all about? We've been in the 10 commandments the last three weeks, kind of giving an overview of that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, not only is that out there, no idols, no crafted you know, things that we would put on our shelves and worship, really, as we look at throughout the scope of scripture and the theme of scripture, really what God's saying there is stop worshiping you. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop putting you in the place of me. Because that's what we do. That's our natural instinct. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, we have adopted their nature, which is to say, I know what's best. You tell me don't eat from this fruit of the tree, I'll eat from it. Why? Because I know better. You know what the story is for all of humanity to walk and worship in the image of God? Well, I know what's better. I wanna walk and worship in the image of me. And so this is who we are. And even those of us who know Jesus and have walked with him for quite some time, this is the daily battle. And so what do we do? Well, we run to the scriptures over and over again to recenter us, to reorient us, to put us back into the place of understanding, oh, okay, this is why I exist and this is what it looks like to worship. Now, this series that we're doing is not gonna be a series as much on lifestyle worship, although that's incredibly important, meaning all of life is worship. Everything that you do is worship. Every part of your existence from Monday through Saturday is to be centered towards and aimed at the worship of God in everything that you do. We're not gonna emphasize that as much as we are corporate worship. What does it look like when we worship together? How did God design for us to worship together? What does he say about it? What does it look like? And for this morning, what does it look like to worship in spirit and in truth? as Jesus said those words. So we're gonna, we're gonna do a, a bit of a flyover of some key teachings in the book of John this morning, answering the question, what does the Bible tell us about what it means to worship in spirit and truth? And we're gonna look at two texts in particular more, more in-depthly, and then we're gonna look at a various number of texts on the back end of this sermon to try to kind of uh, put a bow on it, so to speak, and, and walk away with something 
uh, that we can keep chewing on throughout the course of the week. So turn to John 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fourth book in your New Testament. This is the Apostle John writing his gospel account, his good news account of the, uh, the ministry, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what he says. Let's pick up in verse 16. I'm sorry, in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, pause. Do you ever pause right there and just consider what Jesus stopped to do? Now, there are many, many uh, places in Scripture, and appropriately so, and we talk about this a lot, where Jesus is described, Jesus describes himself, he defines himself as gentle and lowly. We're going to study next year. We're going to do a series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the Beatitudes. And we're going to talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Absolutely. Um, but we sometimes, we don't need to only camp out there such that we don't, uh, that we miss the passion of Jesus as well. He paused when he saw what was happening in the temple. I'll explain what was happening in the temple in just a moment. But when he saw what was happening in the temple, the place of worship, he was so righteously, sinlessly enraged that he took the time to go and make a whip of cords. In other words, this was not an instinctual outburst of anger. This was not a unmeasured and unmeasured outburst of anger where he just went, Oh, and he just started raging. No, no, no. He took the time to go sit down because he was so disgusted at what was happening in the place of worship that he put together a whip of cords. And then he went back to the temple and this is what he did. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables This is not some little moment here of just Jesus walking up and saying, I've got a whip, guys. You're probably going to want to leave. No, no, no. He is slinging the whip. We don't know what that looks like if he actually made contact with anything or anyone, but he is in righteous anger, turning things over, pouring things out, and chasing these people out of the place of worship. Then he says this, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us to do these things? In other words, they're they're, they're questioning his authority. They did this throughout his entire ministry. What sign do you do that would give you the authority, the the right to come in here and ransack this place and cost us all this money and cause all this distraction and upheaval? Who do you think you are? You're a carpenter from Nazareth. And so do you have some kind of sign? And Jesus could have very easily at that point done something that they went Wow, I guess you do have a sign. 
He could have done anything he wanted as the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth. Or even if he didn't do that, he could have said, hey, guys, you just need to know I'm the son of God. And here's why I have come and I have come, you know, so on and so forth. But he speaks in a way that he knows, at least initially, they're not going to understand. This is how he answers their question. What sign do you do? Listen to what he does. He says, uh, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up on three, in three days? This is the great temple of, of Herod that is opulent and magnificent and glorious. And they were saying, this took 46 years to build. First, you come in here and throw everything into upheaval. And then you say, tear this place down. I'll build it in three days. And they're totally missing. They're only thinking literally. They're thinking of the building. And they're, they're not seeing what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is what he's saying. Don't miss it. He's saying this is a place of worship. This is the place of worship. And you have made it into a self-indulgent worldly affair. And so I'm cleansing it. I'm purifying it. And I'm centering this place of worship on me. Because think of what he's saying. He's saying, I am the temple. I am the temple. Think back to what was the temple in the Old Testament. What was the purpose of the temple? The temple was the place where you would come to make sacrifice. Why would you make sacrifice? Well, because as those who are sinners, God had set up a system of sacrifice so that you would not experience the wrath of his sin appropriately from a just and holy God. And so instead of the wrath of sin and the justice of sin being poured out on you, you poured out on a substitute. And to what end? Just so that God's wrath would be withheld from you? No, so that you could then not only be out from under the punishment of sin, but so that you could worship God. That's where his presence dwelled. The temple was the place of the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. So it was a place of simultaneous sacrifice and presence, the presence of God occurring at the same place. So what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you wanna know what the temple is now? I'm the temple, and I wanna point you to the cross because it's at the cross that where the fullness of sacrifice and the fullness of the presence of God is going to collide. And it's only in that one place that the temple now is what it ultimately should be, which is to say that it's not about a place where you come to worship and make sacrifice. It's about a person who made sacrifice for you. That's true worship. It's about me. Now, of course, they don't get that. They miss it. This is what they say in response. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even his disciples were confused until the resurrection. And they go, oh. Guys, he wasn't talking about the building. He's talking about himself. He raised on the third day. He's the temple. Our worship is to be about him. He's made once and for all final sacrifice. He is the presence of God. And now he dwells in us. We are the temple of God because he is the temple of God. And he, through faith in him, puts the spirit of Christ himself in us. This is profound. This union with Jesus, 
that Paul called such a mystery that even marriage reflects. You remember what Ephesians 5, God's, Jesus, uh, Paul's, Paul, God's speaking through Paul. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, Paul's talking and God's saying, as he's talking about marriage, he's saying, and this mystery is profound. And you think he's gonna say this, this mystery of marriage. And then he goes back to Christ and the church and the union that we have with Jesus. And you go, oh, well, I guess that means that the way that God designed marriage was not just this relationship that the world will go, I guess you're just exclusively gonna be with this person for the rest of your life. No, it's to magnify and point to the greater union that we have with Jesus and our groom, Jesus, and we as his bride. Christian marriage is incredibly significant to point people to the gospel of union with Jesus. And so there's this thing at play here where Jesus is saying this, this is what he's doing. In this account, he's doing this. He's confronting and he's condemning worldliness and self-indulgence in the place of worship. Now, this for, for just a moment should sting us because while on one hand, we're not selling pigeons in the, in the courtyard out there, out there, we tend to bring in our, our self-indulgent preferences to worship. And so when we think about the place of worship and we think about this space, or if you're uh, watching us and, and you have a local church, uh, when we think about those places where we gather, What does it look like to come into those spaces and be confronted with Jesus in such a way to where he exposes our selfishness? He exposes our worldliness. By the way, the Old Testament had set up a system where pigeons and sheep and oxen would be sold in the courtyards of the temple. They weren't wrong in doing that. Jesus was not upset because they were doing what the Old Testament told them to do. Why? Because people come to make sacrifice. They don't own a pigeon. They don't own a sheep or an ox. They, they got to pay for it so they can go and make sacrifice for their sin. And so that transaction had to take place. What is Jesus upset about? He's upset about the fact that that's the only thing that's taking place. It has taken the place of worship. This is to be a place of prayer of deep, heartfelt worship to Yahweh, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who promised that there would be one great and final sacrifice to come. And instead of their hearts being focused on that, they're focused on self-consumption and self-gain. And he's irate about that. He was cleansing the temple of its consumerism, of its idolatry, of its commerce, So here's what we do. We tend to make worship about a place and about an experience rather than a person, rather than Jesus. And we tend to make worship about personal consumption rather than godly affection. We're gonna talk more about this next week. I'm gonna do, the sermon next week is gonna be called Worship, worship Together in Self-Denial. What does it look like to come into this space gathered with believers, gathered with people who are searching out the faith and to deny ourselves because we always bend towards preference rather than deference. We always tend to find ourselves saying, this is what I want rather than this is what the body needs. 
So you can look forward to that really comfortable sermon next week. Turn to John 4. In John 4, we come across another really um, well-known, even if you haven't been in or around church, you have heard about this story probably of the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. Jesus has encountered this woman and he has begun to um, draw her unto himself. He's begun to offer her uh, water, but not physical water. He's talking to her about the fact that he can give her a water that will satisfy her for all of eternity. And she's not getting it just in the same way that the that these Jewish people didn't understand that he was talking about himself, not the physical temple. He's talking about this living water that will satisfy her soul for all of eternity. And she thinks he's talking about physical water that she will never thirst again physically. And she's not getting it. And so he presses in even more. And he says, hey, I know that you've had five husbands. And she goes, whoa, okay, hold up. You just went there. I thought we were talking about water. He presses in more and he he begins to draw her heart out in an affectionate way, not in a condemning way, to where she ends up saying, okay, uh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And so I have a question for you. Now, whether this was her deferring, trying to get the conversation away from her personal life, or whether she was genuinely concerned about the place of worship, we don't know, but we'll take it for, uh, we'll believe the best in her and say that it was because she genuinely was concerned. Like, where are we supposed to worship? You're a prophet, where are we supposed to worship? This is what she says. If you pick up in, uh, in verse 19 of chapter four, it says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here's the second thing that that I want you to know from from this text. is that God cares about where we worship. That is important to him. I'll speak to that in just a moment. Place does matter. But what Jesus is doing in this context is he's, he's moving the conversation away from location and place and more to the heart. So he cares more about our heart and our how of worship. He cares about place. He cares more about the heart and the how of our worship. So let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. So this woman is a Samaritan, as we've mentioned. Um, history of this would be that Uh, In 722 BC, the northern tribes of Israel, the 10 northern tribes of Israel were uh, ransacked and dispersed by the great nation of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria back then. And that dispersion put all these northern tribes out into all these other spaces with pagan people, if you will, people who didn't believe in the one true God. And as a result of that, they began to intermarry and have children with these other races and other, other belief systems. And what came out of this was kind of this hybrid group, if you will, that just kind of generically known as the Samaritans, who were, the Jews called them half-breeds because they were kind of Jewish, but they weren't. And they had this kind of Jewish religious practice, but it was also mixed with paganism. 
Now, the Samaritans also only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as it's called. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only believed that was the scripture. And because of that, they rejected the rest of what we would know as the Old Testament. So they did not believe uh, in the Davidic temple that we read about in 1 Chronicles, where David says God is going to build his temple here in Jerusalem. Solomon builds the temple actually a little bit later on. But they did not recognize that as the proper place of worship. What they did instead is they set up their worship on this mount called Mount Gerizim. So when she says to Jesus, when she, makes the, when she poses the question, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she's gesturing to that mountain. They're probably somewhere close to it. She's looking at it. And by the way, when you say mountain, don't think like Rockies. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that what they call a mount oftentimes is not, not much more than what we would call a hill here. But a raise of land that looks somewhat like a big hill and said, okay, this is Mount Gerizim. This is the place that we worship. And so she's genuinely, I think, concerned about, okay, if you're a prophet, you can answer this for me because I've been troubled by this. If I've been worshiping in the wrong place, will you let me know? Because I'll start going to Jerusalem. Even though I'm a Samaritan, I'll start going there. And God relieves, Jesus relieves her, her consternation by pointing her away from a location, from a geographic location and more to the heart to the heart of worship. When he says, God is spirit. And if you're gonna worship God, it's not about you're gonna worship him in Gerizim and you're gonna worship him in Jerusalem. You're gonna worship him in spirit and truth. Now, what does that mean? William Hendrickson says it this way. He says, this is his paraphrase of these verses. He says, the hour is coming when neither exclusively in the mountain, in this mountain, nor exclusively in Jerusalem, will you worship the one and only Father through Jesus Christ. Worshiping in spirit and truth can only mean, first, rendering such homage to God that the entire heart enters into the act, and secondly, doing this in full harmony with the truth of God as revealed in his word. So, third point, to worship in spirit and truth is to get at the very spiritual nature of God-centered worship. Because, what do we just read? What did we just read? We just read that God is spirit. Verse 24 of chapter four, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what, what does this mean? What, okay, spirit and truth, God is spirit. Some of the children out there might be learning their catechisms and know that it, you know, you're learning, oh yeah, God is, God is a spirit. It is not, he's not a human like we are. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that there's a way in which he receives proper worship. So what is that way? So let's keep looking at some different verses in John that I think are gonna help answer that question. First, John 14, six. So if we're to worship in spirit and truth, this helps us because Jesus says, I'm the way, and here it is, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if I'm gonna worship in spirit and truth, then that helps me to know that Jesus is truth. That means my, center, uh, my, my worship must be centered on him. He's truth. Okay, so if he's truth, then worshiping God has a lot to do, has everything to do with Jesus, because Jesus is truth. We look at another verse, John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, okay, now, all of a sudden, 
we realize not only is Jesus truth, but he's actually sent what the scriptures call the helper, the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and he is also truth. So to worship God appropriately means that I have to worship him understanding this Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that the Son and the Spirit are truth. We wanna know what truth is today? The scripture tells us. Specifically in the person of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So not only is he truth, the Holy Spirit, but he will guide you into all truth, meaning he will guide you into Christ, who is truth. And he will guide you in so doing into understanding, comprehending, and applying the truth of God. John 14, 17 says this, even the spirit of truth, there it is again, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is before Acts chapter two. This is before Pentecost when the spirit is poured out to indwell all believers and followers of Christ. And so he's speaking in the future at this point, but now it's our reality that the spirit of God will indwell, does indwell everyone who believes upon Christ. So that means that the spirit of God himself, who is truth, if you have believed upon Christ by faith, dwells in you. So you have the spirit of truth in you. Verse 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, there it is again, whom proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So what does the third person of the Trinity do? He constantly points people to Jesus to the one who is embodied truth. 16, 14, he will glorify me. Talking about the spirit will glorify Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's, under, uh, I know I'm going through this fairly quickly, but to worship in spirit and truth, here's a definition, okay? This is what it means. To worship in spirit and truth is to be led empowered and strengthened by the indwelling spirit of truth who never ceases to glorify and bear witness to Jesus who is truth. I'll read that one more time. To worship in spirit and truth is to be led, empowered, and strengthened by the indwelling spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth, who never ceases to glorify and bear witness to Jesus who is truth. So in other words, you cannot worship God in a way that is glorifying and honoring to him unless you know Jesus and because you know Jesus, you have the indwelling spirit. You can't. So if you're seeking to worship God, if you have this generic belief in God, but it's absent of Jesus, then you're not worshiping him. That's not biblical worship. That's generic deism. It's not Christianity. We have a, a thing in America that's getting less and less and less over the years, but we still kind of have this thing in America, but because we're American and because we have founding fathers who talked about God and because I've gone to church some, I'm a Christian. Well, no, according to the scriptures, to worship the one true God has everything to do with Jesus. And if you're not fixated and fascinated and overwhelmed and in awe of the person of Jesus having received his Holy Spirit, then you don't worship God. 
There is only one true God and the only way to him is through Jesus who is truth and through the Holy Spirit who is truth. This is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. So another way to say it would be this. All of the Christian life is to be one of worship, filled and fueled by the Holy Spirit, centered on the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned, I'll say this briefly, we'll talk more about this in the series, but I mentioned briefly, he does care about place. He's helping the Samaritan woman get to the heart of worship, but he cares about where we worship. In fact, he talks a good bit in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament talk a lot about gathering together, to not cease gathering together. How good and pleasant it is, the psalmist says, when God's people dwell together in unity. What do we see from the early church? We see a people who aren't just doing this individual me and God thing, but this communal, this, this uh, corporate worship reality where we are gathering together. Why? Because as desperately as we need God, we need each other. Now, we've been in a season here where uh, online worship has exploded, and appropriately so. Because we've been in a season where that's been needed, and there is a need for that going forward. We have many who still worship online with us who uh, have significant health concerns, and there is great need and appropriateness for them to continue to worship with us online. But I want to speak to those of us who maybe perhaps, I'm not looking at you here in the room because you're here, I want to talk to the people online, and I want you to listen to me just for a second. I want to talk to those who have perhaps settled into online worship, not out of conviction, but out of convenience. That it's something that has just become comfortable when God has said, no, no, I want you with God's people. If you're, if you're not in a place where health is a concern of yours, then I would, as a pastor and as your pastor, if you're a member of Perimeter, I would say it's time to come back. It's time to be with God's people because we need each other. If you're joining us and you're in another city, not near or around us, then I would say this. We love you. We want to be a resource to you. Please watch our services, but do that on some day other than the Sabbath. Plug into your local church. Here's why. First, because that's how God designed it. Secondly, practically, if you have crisis, we can't show up. We can't be your community. We can't invite you to the table with us. There's ways in which the local body has been designed by God to be an embodied corporate reality. And that's where we most experience what it looks like to worship him. And so I love you. I'm for you, but I want what's best for you. And so, uh, know my heart. It's my little, my little side note there. Now, C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said that the word that stood out, this was in, in his book, Surprised by Joy, the word that he hated most was interfere. He didn't want to be interfered with. I want to do my life, I want to do my life the way that I want to. And then he read the Bible and he said, what I saw most in the Bible was that God put at the very center this reality that he is the transcendental interferer. He's the one who interferes with our lives. And he interferes with every aspect of our lives. He, takes, he doesn't let us just walk in one way over here and only interfere with something over here. He interferes with all of who we are, including our worship, how we worship, the ways in which 
we engage in corporate worship and in personal worship individually with him. One of the ways he interferes with us is this table. It's a calling back. It's a reminder. And it's, an, it's, it's a reality. It's a sacrament of a means of grace where we believe, we don't believe that these elements are the literal uh, body and blood of Jesus, but we do believe that the spirit of God is present in a mysterious way when we take these elements and he's nourishing us. He's nourishing us as a means of grace. And he's drawing us into his presence in a way to remind us of the cross, to remind us that in all the ways that we were fine doing life the way that we wanted, he interfered. And the God of the universe became flesh and had his flesh ripped apart and rose from the dead so that you and I could worship the one true God through him. What a blessing. Prepare your hearts for the table. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Pray that you would take the reading and the teaching of your word and apply it appropriately to our hearts and to our minds. And now, Father, as we prepare our hearts for this sacrament of communion, we pray and ask that you would take this time and you would would minister to us, you would nourish us, you would strengthen us by your grace that we would be a people who aren't only reminded, but we would be a people who are amazed of what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.